Welcome to the Battle for the Republic. Thank you for joining me today. It is October 25th, 2018. And as I was reading some articles, especially one last night, I ended up just kind of being caught with the idea of talking about money today. Money is an amazing is amazing concept. It's it's one of those things that many of us take for granted. Many of us think we understand what it is. Many of us know that we don't fully understand what it is and it is a concept that is really kind of ever changing. And we see that money as a concept has changed throughout the years. And so I started looking at articles about the history of money, and I started doing research on that. A lot of it I, I knew and was familiar with from, from my earlier research. <clears throat> the, the more interesting thing was is that how so many of them, so many of the articles, ended up having a non-consistent development for the idea of money, how money came about, when money actually coinage started to happen. The the Wikipedia article actually suggested that there were two prevailing concepts of money. Before I get into that, the history of it all, I think it's really important for me to talk about this article that I found on Zero Hedge that, that kind of sparked me thinking about all of this. And it's interesting. This article has been posted for 24 hours and it's had eight shares, you know, eight shares. A lot of Zero Hedge articles um, that I have found, like here is one, um, has 52 shares and it's been up for about four hours. So the fact that something's been up for 24 hours and only has been shared eight times kind of suggests that either people just lack any type of interest in the concept of money or the study of money, or that, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just something that only a few people think is worth sharing the information that is out there. But Last week, we talked about how China is the model, how as a concept for the global elite, China is the most acceptable, uh, palatable system of political discourse because of how easily controllable it is. That is that is the appeal of China. And the reason why there is that appeal is because of the ability to control individuals, to control society. And money is one of those concepts that, too, is controllable. It's a lot of individuals don't realize how we are controlled by our money, how in our current day we are debt slaves to a paper currency that has very little wealth. But before I get off into that, which is not really a tangent, but it's it's getting the end before the beginning. It's getting the cart before the horse. I think it's important to go through this little article because as I read it and as I contemplated it, I thought that the author 
kind of missed the entire point of the subject at hand. And so he starts off by by noting that the article is gold's official price is forty two dollars. And maybe that's a good thing. And so this this was an article title that intrigued me. Gold's official price is forty two dollars was actually currently trading around twelve twenty five. I didn't look at it. At least when the article was was written, it was trading around twelve twenty five. I hadn't looked at it on Kitco today uh, to see what. It was uh, trading at, but with a little bit of the interwebs, it looks like it's at twelve thirty-four. Uh, so it's gone up about nine dollars since this article was written, and it's it's just one of those things that that it's interesting to think about. Gold at forty-two dollars an ounce. Whereas in reality, if you wanted to go out to the store and you wanted to buy an ounce of gold, it would be at $12.34. So the article by J.P. Koenig um, ends up being, or Koning, excuse me, uh, from bullionstar.com starts off, people often whisper conspiratorially about the age-old U.S. practice of fixing the gold price at $42.22. A complaint that the author has heard is that they're just trying to keep gold down. But in this post, I'll show you that the monetary authorities have sound reasons for keeping the price of gold at $42.22. So what individuals should realize is that the price of gold had had on the international stage had been set by the Bank of London. Um, and really, we, we do see it, it fluctuate, but it, a lot of it, I mean, we ended up having some U, uh, UBS um, managers who have been indicted for manipulating gold through the futures markets. And so we have seen a lot of, of gold and silver manipulation uh, by large institutional <clears throat> investors. I mean, even whenever it comes to many central banks, they like depressing the price of gold so that you don't recognize how currency is being inflated. And so the, this article continues below. I've charted out the history of the U.S.'s official gold price. As you can see, the $42.22 price has been maintained since 1973. An odd-seeming state of affairs, given that gold is currently hovering at around $1,225. The practice of setting archaic price for the yellow metal looks even stranger when we consider that central banks all over the world have adopted the habit of using the market price of gold to value their gold reserves. U.S. official gold price from 1900 to 2018. U.S. monetary gold. To understand what is at stake, let's start with a few stylized facts about U.S. monetary gold. Number one, central banks that keep gold on their balance sheets tend to hold physical gold, but the U.S. Federal Reserve doesn't actually hold physical metal. Instead, it owns gold certificates. Now, this is a time that I need to take a step back and, and point something out that the U.S. Federal Reserve is neither federal nor a reserve. It's as federal as Federal Express, um, and it doesn't believe in a reserve system. Um, and so we'll get into that here in a moment. But 
the the fact that they don't actually hold the physical metal is very very important but it again i i think that it tends to be lost on this specific author so number two the fed registers the value of these gold certificates on its books at 11 billion dollars see the screenshot below it has used the same number for decades these certificates have been number three these certificates have been issued to the fed by the u.s treasury a different branch of the federal government. To learn about why and when the Treasury issued them, read my old posts on the topic. And see, you got to go back to the speeches of Alan Greenspan as, as head of the Federal Reserve and the fact that Greenspan had what they referred to as Fed speak, where he would go before Congress and he would give his reports. Though at the end of the day, what Greenspan would do is, is he would talk in terms that really were not relatable to anyone. And that's what Fed speak was. Fed speak is a type of jargon. You know, it's, it's in olden days, it's what set the priestly class away from the peasant class, the, those who had esoteric knowledge, the, the knowledge that, that was hidden and not to be revealed. And so in in this Fed speak, he ends up being almost, um, well, for lack of a better word, he's a priest of mammon. He actually is someone who cloaks the true meaning of language, because to tell you the truth of what the Fed was doing would be shocking to anyone who was in a position of power or even those who are not in a position of power. And so it's important to understand that whenever it comes to the Federal Reserve, that Greenspan would refer to its independence from those who do policy. And that's that's something that this individual who wrote this this article continues to believe is actually a good thing, that the, the Fed independence is actually seen as something that is meant to limit policymakers from the ability to inflate the currency. But again, if we look at the article title, if we look at what the Federal Reserve has pegged the worth of an ounce of gold at 42 US dollars and 22 US cents, and we look at what the open market has pegged the cost of gold at $1,234, we see that the existence of the Federal Reserve and its actions since 1973 had done exactly what the says that it was not or insinuates that it was not supposed to do. So here, uh, number four, uh, to back these certificates, U.S. Treasury in turn holds physical gold. According to the September 30th, 2018 status report on U.S. government gold reserves, U.S. Treasury currently holds 261,000 or no, 261 million, 498,926 fine Troy ounces of gold in reserves. The Fed's treasury, number five, the Fed's treasury gold certificates are quite odd. They do not provide the Fed with a claim on a fixed weight of gold held at the treasury. Rather, they provide the Fed with a claim on $11 billion worth of gold. It would be as if your coat check tag constituted a claim on $40 worth of coat rather than the coat itself. And that right there, that number five is the biggest part that we must focus on because this is the, the one truism, the one part that is true is that the federal 
the Fed's, the Federal Reserve's Treasury Gold Certificates are quite odd. They do not provide the Fed with a claim on a fixed weight of gold held at the Treasury. Rather, they provide the Fed with a claim on $11 billion worth of gold. It would be as if your coat check tag constituted a claim on $40 worth of coat rather than the coat itself. And here's the difference. We have about $1,100 worth of spread. The difference between what the Federal Reserve believes that they can purchase gold for and the amount that it costs to buy gold on the open market. So the Federal Reserve can buy gold based upon their peg from the Treasury. And an $1,100 discount. Just let that sink in. Just think, if I had the printing presses and I could create $1,100, then the multiplying effect of me running the printing presses doesn't hurt me. It actually helps me. Because at that point, divided by 42, 22, means that I can create for every one ounce of gold that I would have to purchase on the open market, I could buy 27 ounces of gold from the federal, from the treasury. What would you prefer? Would you prefer the ability to take $1,100? 1100 or let's see, what is it? It's actually uh, $1,234 and go out and buy 28 ounces of gold from the U.S. Treasury. Or would you prefer to take uh, $1,234 and buy one ounce of gold on the open market? So he says, how many ounces of gold does the 11 billion claim entitled the Fed to? Well, that depends on the price of gold that is used in the calculation. At the official price of $42.22, the Fed's $11 billion in gold certificates lay claim to the 20, 261 million ounces of gold held at the U.S. Treasury. So pretty much every bit of the 261,498,927 ounces held at the Treasury is the property of the Fed. Actually, not really. And is the property of the U.S. people. So we can now start to see some of the complications involved in marking the official gold price to market, setting the official price at today's level of $1,225 per ounce. The Fed's $11 billion worth of gold certificates would constitute a claim on just 9 million ounces of the yellow metal. That is of the 261,498,000 ounces held at the Treasury, just 3.4% would now be earmarked to satisfy the Fed's gold certificates. This would deprive the Fed of 96.6% of the ounces that had previously been stored on its behalf. Deprive the Fed of what is not the Fed's. So is that really a deprivation or is that an actual accounting? See, this is where it is important to understand This It is very significant that you understand as an American citizen that you understand the way money has come about, the way the Federal Reserve was created, and its impact on the Treasury, on your dollar, on your savings, and on your wealth.
See, the remaining 252 million or so ounces, the author notes, would henceforth constitute the property of the U.S. Treasury. See, it's all the property of the U.S. Treasury. See, if the U.S. Treasury holds it, possession is nine-tenths the law. The only thing the Fed has are certificates of claim from the U.S. Treasury. So, of course, it's in the Fed's interest to keep the claim at $42.22. So the author asks, but who cares, you ask? Sure, changes to the official price of gold may alter the effective owner of the U.S. gold stash. But given the Fed and the Treasury are arms of the same U.S. government, they are not. See, this is this is where ignorance is deadly. Ignorance is deadly. Because, see, everything that the Treasury owns is owned by the U.S. taxpayer. The U.S. taxpayer is actually signatory to all the debt of the U.S. federal government. That's why whenever the government does a calculation based upon what the U.S. debt is and they look at unfunded liabilities and then they calculate it based upon all the working Americans or all families and they come up with something that's six figures, like $120,000 per household, that's the reason why they factor it that way, because you and I, if you are an American citizen, are an obligatory, you are obligated to be responsible to that debt. Just like in, a, in any state where a husband and wife form another union, it's actually two corporations formed together into a new corporation as, as the way that the state and the banking system come together. It's two corporations where you take on the debt of the other person, and then both are equally liable, unless adjudicated in a court of law when this separation of assets and the dis dissolving of that corporate entity happens. That's the reason why you need a marriage license. You need a license to marry. You need permission. You need to be authorized to form a new corporation. And so it's it's very important that this is another part that we could spend two or three episodes on, just the, the maritime admiralty law and how that affects our common law. And so this this whole article continues uh, for another couple of paragraphs. But the, the, the big thing is, is that when it comes to this forty two dollars and twenty two cents that the U.S. Federal Reserve claims that they are able to buy gold from the U.S. Treasury, that is not a benefit to you, the taxpayer. That is a benefit to the 10 banks that came together to form the Federal Reserve. It is to their benefit. And they are not one in the same of the same government. And so as I as I pondered this, you know, a lot of people love the creature from Jekyll Island. I was raised on Eustace Mullins Secrets of the Federal Reserve um, about, again, the the creature from Jekyll Island is is noted based upon it's the name of the book comes from the island where the bankers got together and came up with the Federal Reserve. Now, it's important to understand the evolution of money. And the reason it's important to understand the evolution of money is, is because the history of money impacts the way we perceive wealth. 
See, from the dawn of civilization, man actually started as a hunter-gatherer. We would either go out and, and hunt or we would gather food as a nomadic lifestyle. There are still individuals, uh, tribal entities. You know, we were we were the, the human species was very tribal in nature. We still end up having a lot of that tribalism. Many groups are still nomadic. I mean, if you even want to think about current concept of gangs like the gypsies, they are still semi-nomadic people. Uh, and then you end up having just different tribes in the Middle East as well as South America. And hunting and gathering were the way that they were actually able to start to survive. Over time, they gathered animals and kept them around and bred them and domesticated them. And then you ended up having herding and animal husbandry, the ability to 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 create another animal from the pairing of two animals and thus have a herd. And by being able to stay in one place, uh, this was able to, to grow a lot faster. If you go back to the historical record, one of the the historical records in the Bible ends up being about how Abraham, uh, the father of many nations, was led to dig wells. And because he dug wells, he didn't have to continually traveling. And because he ended up being able to get his tribe to sit in a, in an area for a long period of time, then his herds became, they would multiply. And the reason why this is important is, is that if you only had two animals or if you only had a chicken, you could do one of two things with a chicken. You can have the chicken for dinner or you could have the chicken lay eggs and you could eat for life if you did that. Well, eventually man realized that, well, if we had these animals and they continue to produce after their own kind, then we would end up having more than what we could deal with. The same thing with farming. Whenever individuals figured out how to farm and they figured out the plants that they could eat and they began to eat some of them and take some aside and sow those seeds and, and cultivate lands, mainly because they had found areas that already ended up being full of milk and honey. You know, you go back to a land full of milk and honey which is obviously referring to the, the milk that comes from the, the livestock, the goats or the cows. And then you also end up having the meat that comes from those animals and then the farming. And it's only through that accrual of more than one could have excess that you actually ended up having the beginning of trading. And then through trading, we basically ended up having the barter system, this this sharing of certain foods for other foods or other goods and services or tools. And so here from Wikipedia, the history of money and basically the the idea is that through this shared need of existence and a shared 
accumulation of goods, one person accumulating goods, that we actually ended up having the creation of commerce, capitalism. See, this is the interesting thing is that actually from my study of the evolution of society, what we see is that capitalism is a critique of a fundamental interaction of human nature existing in nature. Whereas communism is the exact opposite, but we'll get into that here in a second. So. Here's the overview from Wikipedia. The significant evidence establishes many things were bartered in ancient markets that could be described as a medium of exchange. These include livestock and grain, things directly useful in themselves, but also merely attractive items such as cowrie shells or beads were exchanged for more useful commodities. However, such exchanges would be better described as barter. And the common bartering of a particular commodity, especially when the commodity items were are not fungible, does not technically make that commodity money or a commodity money like the shekel, which was both a coin representing a specific weight of barley and the weight of the sack of barley. Due to the complexities of ancient history, ancient civilizations developing at different paces and not keeping accurate records or having their records destroyed because the ancient origins of economic systems precede written history, it is impossible to trace the true origin of the invention of money and the transition from barter system to the monetary systems. Further, evidence in the history support the idea that money has taken two main forms divided into the broad categories of money of account or debits and credits on ledgers and money of exchange. The tangible media of exchange made from wood, paper, bamboo, metal, etc. And it is debated which was created first. Regarding money of account, the tally stick can reasonably be described as a very prim primitive ledger. The oldest of which dates to the about 30,000 years ago. While it may not resemble reasonably, well, it may not be reasonable to conclude the most ancient tally sticks were used to keep accounting records in the monetary system, since of the term, their existence does show that accounting, keeping a written record of things counted, is far more ancient than many people assume. And then you end up having the this idea uh that's positive. David Graeber proposes that money as a unit of account was inverted when the unquantifiable obligation of I owe you one transformed into the quantifiable notion of I owe you one unit of something. In this view, money emerged first as credit and only later took the form of a medium of exchange. Basically, that people would do others favors and then that favor would be returned until it became the fact that, well, this unit of something, this hen is worth that goat or these 10 hens are worth that goat. And so that's where you ended up getting into an exchange. And so you have several different theories and, you know, it's, it's interesting because most of the historical record ends up going back to about 600 B.C. in Lydia. Uh, the creation of a coinage system, though, if we go right back here to the shekel, 
which is noted as one of the first commodities of exchange, represented a specific weight of barley and the weight of the sack of barley. And so the shekel actually ends up having a, it's, it's a Semitic word, it's Hebrew, and it's for the weighing. And this is the interesting part is, is that it goes all the way back to the Sumerian times. The use of the word was first attested in 2150 BC. And we also see it used in 1700 BC in the Hammurabic Code. The reason why that's interesting to me is because I read at least four or five different articles that ended up going back to 600 BC and uh, Lydia, the, the city of Lydia, which is part of Greece. And that's because that's what they end up giving to. Uh, let's see, here it is. Basically a standardized coinage. The different forms and metallurgical processes imply a separate development. All modern coins in turn are descended from the coins that appear to have been invented in the kingdom of Lydia in Asia Minor around the year 600 BC. And that spread throughout Greece in the following centuries. Disc shaped made of gold, silver, bronze or imitations thereof with both sides bearing an image produced by stamping one side is often a human head. So. The coinage of money, the whether it's in Asia where they actually ended up using non-precious metals or whether it was in Greece or the Middle East and around uh, the Semitic areas, the Semitic tribes and the use of, of gold and silver at that time, there was this political warfare aspect to it all which is that when you go into Rome, you had to use Roman coins as a medium of exchange and agreed upon peace that had an agreed upon value. And then we see it in Jesus's times with the money changers outside the temple. See, it would have been unclean to bring Roman or pagan money into the temple as part of your offering. And so the there is a political power in the coinage of money. There is political warfare in the coinage of money. You even know it whenever it comes to the Sadducees and the Pharisees trying to trip up Jesus and whether he was going to lead a revolt. They wanted him to say something that was against Caesar. And so they 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 asked him, what do we do? And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto the Lord what is the Lord's. And this is this is really important because as a modicum of exchange, money has this controlling mechanism. It has the ability to control people. You have the golden rule. Now, the golden rule by many standard is, is you know, treat others as you would have them treat you. But the real golden rule is, is that he who owns the gold makes the rules because gold throughout centuries has been deemed as something that is acceptable as a store of wealth for international 
exchange. And so, you know, there's all sorts of stuff with counterfeiting. You know, you had them shaving gold coins, which is the reason why they made them. They made them round so that they ended up having a distinct shape. That's why they put the edges on them. If you were to take a quarter out of your pocket, especially one that was made of silver back before 74, it ends up having those little lines on the side. It ends up having a distinct edge. And that was so that someone couldn't go in and shave it, shave the edges off, collect that other metal, basically debase the currency. And so we ended up seeing this as a as a way for individuals to basically destroy the wealth of the coin and add to their own wealth and it's it's something that ends up being very gradual but we see it in this article of the $42.22 for an ounce of gold see that's why it's important to understand the difference between between money as a store of wealth and fiat currency because it wasn't there was a transition it wasn't immediate where we went from money as a store of wealth to fiat currency it took a while see if you go back to the early 1900s in America Gold coins were denominated in three and five and ten and twenty dollar units. You have the twenty dollar St. Gaudens, beautiful gold coin collected by many collectors. It's considered a, a, a to this day, it is considered something that will that will be a, a medium of exchange, especially if it has been graded. It is it has a a value that is definite in its melt value, but it also based upon the grading or how well it has been taken care of and not shaved, hasn't been scuffed, how close it is to its mint state, how perfect it is, how much fidelity it has based upon the way that it came out. And by fidelity, fidelity is best described in regard to the engineer's definition of integrity, a state of being undivided, fully in. And the closer a coin is in its characteristics to how it came from the mint, the more value it has intrinsically and extrinsically. So it's important that we recognize that it wasn't immediate that we went into banknotes. See, silver ends up being less expensive than gold. And because of that, you can end up taking several coins of silver as a smaller denomination, which is the reason why whenever we end up seeing the, the quarters, nickels, the dimes, and then the penny is an even smaller denomination, but it couldn't be made of silver because the value of silver was so much higher to make a penny 
out of silver, you would have to make a very, very small penny. So that is the reason why you have all of these different metals that are created for coinage. And it's really only until the, the mid-70s that we start to see that the metals go from, from real precious metals to tokens, or they have very little value in their melt quantity of metal. And so this ended up being something that progressed from banknotes. A long time ago, in order to, to do any type of trade, you ended up having to have gold or silver on you. Well, gold and silver is very hard to, to carry around in any large quantity. And so those would be stored at, in houses, in, in banks. And at that bank, you would end up getting a certificate of deposit, a CD, something showing that you had a certain amount of gold and silver that could be surrendered based upon certain notes. And so bills of exchange became prevalent with the expansion of European trade toward the end of the Middle Ages, a flourishing Italian wholesome trade in cloth, woolen clothing, wine, tin, and other commodities was heavily dependent on credit for its rapid expansion. Goods were supplied to a buyer against a bill of exchange, which constituted the buyer's promise to make payment at some spe specified future date. So bills of exchange were the next step where they were almost like checks. These bills could also be used as a form of payment by the seller to make additional purchases from his own suppliers. Thus, the bills, an early form of credit, became both a medium of exchange and a medium for storage of value. Like the loans made by the Egyptian grain banks, this trade credit became a significant source for the creation of new money. This is from Wikipedia. In England, bills of exchange became an important form of credit and money during the last quarter of the 18th century and the first quarter of the 19th century before banknotes, checks, cash credit lines were widely available. And so the creation of something that represented a precious metal slowly evolved until we got to the point where the precious metals weren't necessarily required. But before that, we ended up having banknotes. So the first European banknotes were issued by Stockholm's Banco, a predecessor of Sweden's Central Bank, in 1661. These replaced the copper plates being used instead of a means of payment, although in 1664, the bank ran out of coins to redeem notes and ceased operating in the same year. And see, this is where runs on banks would end up happening. And again, Wikipedia, inspired by the success of the London goldsmiths, some of whom became the forerunners of great English banks, banks began issuing paper notes, quite properly termed banknotes, which circulated in the same way the government issued currency circulates today. In England, this practice continued up to 1694. Scottish banks continued using, issuing banknotes until 1850 and still do issue banknotes backed by Bank of England notes. In the United States, this practice continued through the 19th century. At one time, there were more than 5,000 different types of banknotes issued by various commercial banks in America. Only the notes issued by the largest, most creditworthy banks were widely accepted. The script of smaller, lesser-known institutions circulated locally, so you actually had a local currency. Farther from home, it was only accepted at a discounted rate, if at all. 
the proliferation of types of money went hand in hand with a multiplication in the number of financial institutions. These banknotes were a form of representative money which could be converted into gold or silver by application at the bank. Since banks issued notes far in excess of the gold and silver they kept on deposit. Sudden loss of public confidence in a bank could precipitate mass redemption of banknotes and result in the bank rupsy, where the bank didn't have enough gold and silver for all of the notes that it had issued. The use of banknotes issued by private commercial banks as legal tender has gradually been replaced by the issuance of banknotes authorizing control by national governments. The Bank of England was granted sole rights to issue banknotes in England after 1694. In the United States, the Federal Reserve Bank was granted similar rights after its establishment in 1913. Until recently, these government-authorized currencies were forms of representative money since they were partially backed by gold or silver and were theoretically convertible into gold or silver. And then we end up having all sorts of balancing. between using banknotes and then the using the use of silver notes. So you can actually find individuals who collect silver notes. They end up having uh, all sorts of denominations and they look exactly like the, the current currency that we end up seeing today. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the Bretton Woods Agreement actually is one of the reasons why the U.S. was taken off of the gold standard. After the end of World War II, the United States, in order to get everyone back into trade again, ended up issuing the, the Bretton Woods Agreement. And the Bretton Woods Agreement basically ended up having the dollar pegged with a certain amount of redeemable gold, which hadn't really been in existence since uh, FDR ended up doing what was referred to as gold confiscation, though no one was ever really had their gold confiscated. So it, with FDR uh, in 1933, um, FDR actually ended up bailing out the Federal Reserve. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's 1933 executive order outlawing the private ownership of gold in the United States was arguably unconstitutional, but why did he do it? Many horror historians and economists point to efforts to get the economy moving again as the reason, the theory being that people were hoarding gold and the velocity of money in circulation needed to be sped up. But the real reason for gold confiscation was a bailout of the privately controlled Federal Reserve Bank, and the evidence has been printed right in front of our faces. And so this is from Moonlight Mint. And uh, this little article about the Federal Reserve bailout. So during during the 1800s, paper money was suspect in the eyes of many. Nobody would ever choose a government issued twenty dollar note over a twenty dollar gold coin. Gradually, during the 1800s and early 1900s, confidence in the government paper money increased to the point where it was widely accepted. People accepted the money because they felt confident they could exchange it at the U.S. Treasury or any Federal Reserve Bank for gold at any time. It even said so on the notes. Without the gold exchange clauses printed directly on the notes, the public would have been much less likely to accept them. 
Silver certificates in United States notes circulated alongside gold certificates, which were legally interchangeable dollar for dollar. In 1913, the Federal Reserve Bank was established and it began issuing Federal Reserve notes the following year. Once free of the restrictions imposed by the limitations of available physical gold for coinage, the quantity of dollars in circulation increased dramatically. The increase was mostly in the form of paper money, not specie. The result was an economic boom, also known as the Roaring Twenties. But like all artificially induced stimulus, it came to a crash in the fall of 1929. The burden of the overextended credit was the culprit. Prior to the formation of the Federal Reserve, money in circulation consisted of copper, silver, and gold coins, United States notes, silver certificates, and gold certificates. All of these were non-interest bearing, were issued directly by the U.S. Treasury, and did not have any debt associated with their issuance. So notice that, again, all of these were non-interest bearing and were issued directly by the U.S. Treasury. Because that's the way the Constitution was written. The Constitution was written that the Congress had the ability to create a system of money. So this article continues noting that notes issued by the Federal Reserve, however, were generally lent out with interest due. So for every Federal Reserve dollar in circulation, somebody needed that dollar to pay off the debt. The Roaring Twenties, a lot of people took on debt, resulting in a great credit expansion. When only physical gold and silver was used as money, institutions were very cautious about lending it out because if the debtor defaulted, the creditor, the creditor would be out some serious actual money. But with the advent of the Federal Reserve notes, the bank was more willing to lend and with easier qualification terms, people stepped up to the window. The increased willingness to lend was due to the fact that the item being lent out was just a piece of replaceable paper, not a hard-to-get piece of gold. Sure, the note said redeemable in gold. Otherwise, they might not have been refused in commerce. But few members of the public actually exchanged such notes for actual gold, and thus the Federal Reserve was free to lend almost at will with little regard for loan losses. When the interest burden of all that new credit began to weigh more heavily on the general economy, the inevitable credit contraction led to the stock market crash and the Great Depression. Everyone was suddenly reluctant to borrow, banks were reluctant to lend, and the velocity of money in circulation slowed to a crawl. The financial footing of the United States became shaky. European countries, which were holding substantial quantities of gold, Gold clause notes began presenting them to exchange for physical gold. The U.S. government fixed gold price at $20.67 per troy ounce had been in effect for some time. But as the Great Depression deepened, the free market price of gold started creeping up above that. This was an indication that confidence in gold clause notes was starting to wane. A gold run on the Federal Reserve Bank was imminent, and that was something that couldn't be tolerated. And the reason that a gold run couldn't be tolerated is that neither the Federal Reserve nor the U.S. Treasury held anywhere near enough gold to back all the gold certificates and Federal Reserve notes that were in circulation. And printing more of these notes would only erode confidence in them further. The gold fractional reserve system was at the end of the road. 
And so it's important to note that slowly they took this redeemable in gold off the note. So in 1905 to 1922, the note ended up reading, this certifies that there have been deposited in the Treasury of the United States of America, $50 in gold coin payable to the bearer on demand. And then in 1928, the clause ended up reading, the United States of America, $50 in gold coin payable to the bearer on demand. So it's it should be noted that they ended up changing the redeemable quality of these notes. And it was mainly because what did they do? Well, they debased the currency. They actually were, were doing the shaving of coins in the creation of dollar certificates that were supposed to be redeemable by gold, but not in actual proportion to the amount of gold that the U.S. Treasury or the Federal Reserve had on hand. And so that's the reason why the 1933 act of FDR to basically cause all men and women in America to turn in their gold was considered gold confiscation because within not too short after that, they ended up chasing, changing the peg of what gold was worth and increasing it. So Roosevelt ended up basically making it one's American duty to turn in your gold um, it's, it's citizens comply with the new law by turning in gold. The gold reserves of the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve increased. After most of the public's gold was turned in, FDR raised the official price from $20.67 to $35 per troy ounce. How convenient. Gold clause Federal Reserve notes were not recalled and remain in circulation, but they can no longer be exchanged for gold except by certain foreign central banks. Those with connections were able to buy valuable assets with mere paper. Wealth was concentrated in fewer hands. The new series of 1934 Federal Reserve notes no longer had any gold clause. They were only redeemable for lawful money, whatever that was. And it's actually over the over the stamp of the, the Federal Reserve says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and is redeemable lawful money off. Uh, at the United States Treasury or at any Federal Reserve Bank. And so this is this is the way that money progressed from being real physical stores of wealth that have been agreed on as modicums of exchanges for at least 2000 years into the paper currency that you currently end up having in your pocket. And the reason why this is important is, is that this is a, a system of control is that, again, he who has the gold makes the rules. That is the golden rule. And so whenever this gentleman writes this article about how he is kind of curious as to why gold is still set at $42.22 as per the Federal Reserve, but yet on the open market, it requires $1,234 in order to purchase an ounce of gold. And he sees this as his articles titled that it is a good thing. Well, it almost sounds like he's a PR shill for the Federal Reserve or he's ignorant of that which he speaks of. 
See, in his in his article, he says, and that is probably why the U.S. Treasury statutory price of gold stays fixed at a decades old level of forty two dollars and twenty two cents. The consensus that independent central banking is a good thing because it keeps a lid on inflation dictates that the Fed have plenty of ammo. If the gold price stays at $42.22, the Fed can lay claim to the full 261 million ounces held by the Treasury. If the price is increased, the Fed gets only a sliver of that, the Treasury laying claim to the rest and with fewer resources. The Fed has less control over the purchasing power of currency. And again, it's important to recognize that the U.S. Treasury is the one that is actually beholden to the American public and that the Federal Reserve is an unelected, unaccountable, non-governmental body that lends back money to the United States at interest based upon the gold that the U.S. Treasury already has. It's a great scam. It's actually the original Ponzi scheme. It's brilliant. It's it's brilliant in regard to how calculating it actually is. And so I I couldn't help but as I read this article to think that it was so important to actually relay all of this information to you, because whenever it comes to the coinage of money. That's why Bitcoin is so feared. That's why all of these cryptocurrencies, all this blockchain is so feared. That's why you hear government say, "Okay, well, we're going to we're going to use that. And then they find out that they can't control it, that it starts being used on the dark web. And then they say, well. Only terrorists use that, you know, and they've even gone as far to say the same thing with cash. They're working to get us into a cashless society. And again, there, there is a reason why this is important. It is all about control. And so. And I'll tie this all together with this surveillance capitalism crosses the line. Privacy expert abandons Google back smart city project. See, China is the model. Control is the goal. A free and open democratic society where individuals are able to express their own ideas is something that is meant to be there on its face, but not in reality. See, there is this dumbing down of the American populace, where as Bertrand Russell on his impact of science on society actually said that the goal was to make it where the average citizen could not even conceive of a revolution. It would be almost as unthinkable as a sheep revolting to the idea of eating mutton, and mutton is eating sheep. And so when it comes to all of this, it's, it's I, I almost cannot stress it enough that realizing the relationship of gold and silver and its impact on society, the, the ability to create money out of thin air and debase the currency, which the Federal Reserve has done, and then to charge us interest on this debasement of our currency with the ability for them to actually purchase the money, the gold out of our treasury at a fraction of what it would be on the open market, roughly one twenty eighth of its value. I mean, at the end of the day, doesn't that suggest that there is an unelected group of technocrats that actually end up having more control over the destiny 
of the United States and the average United States citizen by what they allow money to be spent on and how they increase interest rates to manipulate the economic model and the economic market so that they can end up having dislocations of power or knocking out individuals in government. You know, Reagan railed against the Federal Reserve. Trump is currently railing against the Federal Reserve. JFK railed against the Federal Reserve. Now, two, two out of three of those gentlemen were shot. One was shot in Daly Plaza. Reagan was shot by a Hinckley who ended up having a relationship with the Bushes going back to Texas Tech and actually in business interests. So it's really interesting when your vice president actually ends up having dinner with the parents of the young man who ends up shooting you. I mean, it's just I mean, it's just really interesting, isn't it? Isn't that something that, that's worthy of, of further contemplation is the relationship between the Hinckley's and the Bushes? Or even the Bushes and Daily Plaza. And so we're going to take an end to this segment. But when we get back, we're going to talk about how they would love to end up using big data to control us, how Google, Alphabet, want to create a smart city. And this is where they convince us that our enslavement is actually for the bettering of humanity. Much like in Thomas More's Utopia, individuals thought that it was brilliant that they own nothing. But actually, if we go back in history, whether it is the, the Russian peasant who owned just a cow that was going to be seized by the Bolshevik government, they would kill the cow, they wouldn't work the field, and they would all let it go to pot because there is something in us as human beings where we want something of our own. You see it in young children when it comes to their toys and playtime. They have to be taught to share. Sharing does not come natural. You see it with a man and his wife. He does not intend to share her with anyone or a woman with her husband. That's because we are naturally in this for ourselves, but also there is this desire to have something, to be something more. And the accrual of wealth is what scares the international globalist elite because it's from the middle class that anyone has the ability to climb the ranks to the upper class. And so the battle for the republic will continue after a short break. Welcome to the second hour of the battle for the republic. <clears throat> so I spent the first hour talking about an article and the Interesting research that I ended up doing off of that article based upon the coinage of money and the evolution of money from a barter system to the Federal Reserve notes that we enjoy today. And as I left on that segment, I ended up pointing out that John Fitzgerald Kennedy 
had said that he wanted to end the Federal Reserve and that Reagan had at one point in time said that he wanted to, uh, he criticized the Federal Reserve. Um, and we see that coming up in the, in the news today in regard to, to Trump saying, uh, that the Federal Reserve is, is messing with the economy. And so Reagan's Federal Reserve chairman, Paul Volcker, who in order to spur on savings and stop Carter's inflation from happening, ended up jacking up interest rates about 16 to 18%. Um, and so that ended up causing me to, to make the comment of that the Hinckley's and the Bushes were friends, which, you know, granted, I thought was a wild comment when I first heard it. But here, here is actually a news report. Uh, from it looks like ABC News, March 31st, 1981, after Reagan was shot. Uh, and this is on YouTube, Bush connection to Reagan shooter Hinckley. Hotel was visited by Hinckley, who reportedly waited for a phone call here each day, even though he had a phone in his motel room. The nature of the call did not know. And in Chicago today, the FBI called on the headquarters of the National Socialist Party of America where the group's president says Hinckley was booted out of the party in 1979 after a year's membership. Mike, why was he kicked out? Well, for his attitudes, you know, he uh, kept talking about uh, going out and uh, shooting people and blowing things up. A touch of irony. The young man walking with the elder Hinckley is 30-year-old Scott Hinckley, John Jr.'s brother. He and Vice President Bush's son, Neil, are friends. They have planned to have dinner together in Denver tonight. The plans have been canceled. Okay, one more time. The young man walking with the elder Hinckley is 30-year-old Scott Hinckley, John Jr.'s brother. He and Vice President Bush's son, Neil, are friends. They have planned to have dinner together in Denver tonight. The plans have been canceled. Stephen Gear, ABC. Of course those plans have been canceled. So, uh, John Hinckley's brother ended up being friends with Neil Bush at Texas Tech. Neil Bush, the same Bush who actually ended up having the security contract. One second. Before I say it, I just have to confirm it. Okay, it was Marvin Bush, a different Bush. Never mind. So Neil Bush was at the White House on 9-11. But yes, uh, and so this is just one of those those interesting facts that whenever it came to the Bushes and the Hinckleys, the, the sons ended up knowing each other from Texas Tech. Hinckley was from Highland Park, Texas, the suburb of Dallas. And it's just one of those things where it's it's really interesting to see the same names come back again. This is Bush connection to Reagan's shooter Hinkley, and so uh, I recommend that that if you couldn't hear it, that you go and look for it. I mean, they say it very clearly right here after they ended up. So Hinkley was was part of the National Socialist Movement or the Nazis, and uh, after that part of the segment. Scott Hinckley. Scott Hinckley. He and Vice President Bush's son Neil are friends. They have 
Neil Bush and Scott Hinckley were friends, according to ABC News. Again, this isn't the battle for the public saying it. This is an actual video from ABC News from the time, which would be considered a primary source citing that relationship. And it's just a weird coincidence, you know, it's just one of those weird coincidences. Just nothing to see here. Just a very, very weird coincidence. And so let's see. One of the things that I said that we'd go over is this article um, about surveillance capitalism. This by Joseph Jankowski uh, posted on Zero Hedge. Um, Joseph Jankowski, uh, planetfreewill.com. And so it's about a Google backed smart city where one of the individuals that was meant to be there to create, help create this smart city with the idea of privacy has gone ahead and quit. And so, uh, Anne Kavokian, the former privacy commissioner of Ontario wrote in a resignation letter to Google sister company, Sidewalk Labs, I imagined us creating a smart city of privacy as opposed to a smart city of surveillance. I felt I had no choice because I had been sold because I've been told by Sidewalk Labs that all of the data collected would be de-identified at source. You know, this is the interesting thing is, is that many of the individuals who create the systems and modes of control do so with this ideal to the the greater good. You know, when you look at William Binney, William Binney executive at the National Security Agency, uh, actually ended up parting ways with the NSA when Stellar Wind, a project that was green-lighted by CIA uh, general uh, or former CIA head and NSA head Michael Hayden, uh, who was an Air Force general um, and also uh, an individual in the, in the George W. Bush administration. Basically, he left because he felt that he created, William Benny created a program that at a fraction of the cost was able to only surveil specific subjects and not everyone. But yet Hayden greenlit Stellar Wind, which actually was at an enormous cost. And it spied on every single American. And so William Benny quit. And so the FBI ended up raiding his home because he did quit. And and the way that he quit, though, I only bring him up because just like William Benny, Kavukian ended up quitting based upon principle. And this is the interesting thing that we always have to think about is that whenever someone is principled and they quit based upon their 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 perceived self-standard, what happens whenever the individual who is next hired doesn't have that same high standard and high goals? So you always like having someone on the inside who can whistleblow, but you also do want someone who stands up and says this is not right. And that's the needle to thread. The question is, is where is the balance? So Kabukian was an acting consultant involved in the plan by Canada's waterfront Toronto to develop a smart city neighborhood in the city's quayside development. 
she had created an initiative called Privacy by Design that aimed to ensure citizens' personal data would be protected. Once it became apparent that citizen privacy could not be guaranteed, Gabukian decided it was time to leave the project. And this is a excerpt from a Gizmodo article. But then at a Thursday meeting, Kabukian reportedly realized such anonymization protocols could not be guaranteed. She told the Canadian news outlet that Sidewalk Labs revealed at the meeting that their organization could commit to her guidelines, but other involved groups would not be required to abide by them. Kabukian realized third parties could possibly have access to identifiable data gathered through the project. She ended up telling Global News, when I heard that I I said, I am sorry, I cannot support this. I have to resign because you committed to embedding privacy by design to every aspect of your operation. Being touted as the world's first neighborhood built from the Internet up, the Google Design Smart City is set to deploy an array of cameras and sensors that detect pedestrians and traffic lights or alert cleanup crews when garbage bins overflow, reports the Globe and Mail. Robotic vehicles will whisk away garbage in underground tunnels, heated bike lanes will melt snow, and a street layout will accommodate a fleet of self-driving cars. So this is a double-edged sword of technology. As we think about it, whenever it comes to anything that could be used for good, it could also be used for untold speakable evil. And this ends up getting into to Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong or the law of unintended consequences, which is that, you know, it's it's also summed up as the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you have the splitting of the atom, which creates through fission a lot of nuclear power and energy. But you also have the splitting of the atom, which creates the fission of the hydrogen and atomic bombs. So in in one sense, nuclear energy ends up being something that is that is great for life. And then you have in another sense, it is it is destructive of life. And we're seeing this recently played out with Monsanto and their their Roundup. And and so Monsanto created Roundup as a way to kill weeds. Well, what they found was, is that as they worked to kill weeds, weeds became resistant. So it required more and more Roundup. And so then it started to kill the crops in order to keep it from killing the crops. Then you had to create Roundup resistant organisms or Roundup resistant crops so that you can dump as much Roundup on them as possible. I mean, whenever it comes to Monsanto, how could you doubt that the creator of Agent Orange would ever do anything that hurt the food supply? I mean, come on. You're just. So whenever we think about what what technology holds and how it can be used for good, just think about your cell phone and all the information that it brings to you. But on the other hand, you should think about how your cell phone is a transmitting tracking device that at any point in time can be turned on to videotape or or uh, audio tape you and what you were saying, what you were doing at any point in time. So this smart city that's being touted as the world's first neighborhood built from the Internet up where cameras would end up watching you. Well, if you think about it, facial recognition cameras. They could watch you. They could actually identify who you are from a distance. Have you paid your bills? Do you have outstanding warrants or even worse? 
Do you have ideas that are subversive to a government that is out of control? See, this is the thing that many individuals don't really think about. And then when they actually have the nerve to speak up, then those who run the modes of thought control end up having the counterpunch, which is, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you have nothing to fear. Well, actually, you do. You have a lot to fear. You have a lot to fear from the unscrupulous authoritarian, the unscrupulous technocrat, those who will actually say that the truth be damned, you are insignificant. You can even think of Stalin. You know, Stalin ended up saying that the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. You have Cardinal Richelieu, another man of great power. And what he said was, is you give me an innocent man, you have him write five lines, and by morning I will have him hung. And this is what we end up seeing a lot in regard to investigations by the state. They get you to say, make make one statement and account. And then after, you know, eight to 10 hours of, of not sleeping and asking the same questions and asking the same questions in different ways, whether there are any changes, any deviations from the original statement. And if there are, huzzah, they have found you in a lie. And these are the things that we really have to pay attention to is, is what what does the law of unintended consequences suggest could end up happening if all of this is created in regard to the smart city? See, this city will also provide each citizen a user account that will allow access to the various online services of the neighborhood and improve participatory democracy. Well, if we go back to China's social credit we actually, their social credit system, here from the New York Post, China's social credit system is a real-life black mirror nightmare. And so this article notes, China's chilling dictatorship is moving quickly to introduce social scorecards by which all citizens will be monitored 24-7 and ranked on their behavior. The Communist Party's plan is for every one of its 1.4 billion citizens to be at the whim of a dystopian social credit system and it's on track to be fully operated by the year 2020. An active pilot program has already seen millions of people each assigned a score out of 800 and either reap its benefits or suffer its consequences, depending on which end of the scale they sit. Under the social credit scheme, points are lost and gained based upon readings from a sophisticated network of 200 million surveillance cameras, a figure set to triple in 18 months. The program has been enabled by rapid advances in facial recognition, body scanning, and geotracking. The data is combined, combined with information collected from individuals, government records, including medical and educational, along with their financial and internet browsing histories. Overall scores can go up and down in real time, depending on the person's behavior, but they can also be affected by people they associate with. Does that not sound like terrorist targeting or terrorist Tuesday, as they euphemistically referred to it in Obama, where it was more like the targeting of terrorists using the same game of seven degrees from Kevin Bacon, which because of Kevin Bacon's work, you know, anyone can be connected or has within seven degrees a connection to Kevin Bacon. 
So overall scores can go up and down in real time, depending on the person's behavior, but they can also be affected by people they associate with. We even saw this with the financial system, looking at social media and who someone represented or who someone associated with as a way to identify their credit worthiness. This is this is really important. We we be aware of the the permutations that all of this can end up doing, the, the different variables that this can end up going out of. So if your best friend or your dad says something negative about the government, you'll lose points too. the Australian Broadcasting Company reports. The mandatory social credit system was first announced in 2014 in a bid to reinforce the notion that keeping trust is glorious and breaking trust is disgraceful, according to a government document. So you think about that, you think about China's social credit system and you think about this surveillance city, surveillance capitalism. So the city will also provide each citizen a user account. Again, we're back to the Zero Hedge article, which will allow access to the various online services of the neighborhood and improve participatory democracy. Such an account could potentially work with facial recognition and allow for an example, a repairman to get into a home to perform his duties and firefighters to have access a building when a fire alarm is triggered. The project's critics include former BlackBerry CEO Jim Vasily, who referred to the development as a colonizing experiment in surveillance capitalism attempting to bulldoze important urban civic and political issues. See, data mining is the new gold. It is the new gold mining. Data is the new currency. It is the currency of the realm for the technocratic elite, the ability to create a Philip K. Dick stylized minority report system where they can predict where you will be based upon your patterns. See, the human species is a species of patterns. We end up having different things that we do. We end up falling into specific patterns, modes of acting. Routine. Routine for many people is comforting. You know, you end up having a bad day. Well, you end up also when you have a bad day, normally you probably fall into the same pattern. Some people drink. Some people go and exercise. They may jog. So if they end up having a rough, a rough day, you can actually end up setting it up where someone will actually go out and do whatever their pattern is. Well, this is like pieces on a chessboard for those who are really paying attention. And I do not say that lightly. See, if you actually watch many of the intriguing kind of spy thrillers, what they end up doing is they put someone in an awkward situation to cause them to react in a certain way. Well, that reaction is meant to precipitate an action in which they will come into contact or conflict with another individual. And a lot of this is just like pieces on the chessboard. So this is, you know, the, this surveillance capitalism and this privacy expert having to step aside it's it's one of the things that that we have to pay more attention to, because whenever they roll this out, they roll it out as something that ends up being it's the savior of humanity. It's it's the it's progress. It is meant to get us to that next level. You know, we end up seeing this with with even Google CEOs, 
Ray Kurzweil and his singularity or the, the combining of humanity with machine and this creation of cyborgs and, and chips and biohacking. And so wearables, the, this idea that, you know, you got your Fitbit. Well, you, they ended up going from Fitbit to the Apple Watch. Well, the Apple Watch does what the Fitbit does, and it's connected to your iPhone and your iPad and your iMac. And then it ends up in connecting to your to your media history. And then you have Apple TV. So not only do they know what you search at any given point, they know who you call so they can actually come up with a framework or a map of your social interactions, much like the social credit. And they can see, well, if he spent two hours talking to his father and his father has subversive ideas, then it is probably easy to assume that he has subversive ideas. So why don't we just end up tapping into his line? Because AT&T, according to William Benny, ends up having probably 23 nodes across the United States. And in each one of those nodes, there's that architecture that they found in that San Franciscan AT&T node, where at least a single floor requires a top secret security clearance, probably special compartmental compartmented uh, information clearance, TSSCI, where you can only gain access if you are, are in that program and that all of that information that's going through the AT&T hub is being routed to other servers and then coming out of it. Now, you know, Diane Feinstein has said that the, that the NSA is, is tapped into the backbone of the Internet to monitor all traffic. And then you end up having the the server farm in Bluffdale, Utah, where they're wanting to be able to process a Yodabyte or a million gigabytes of information a second. So this is what the NSA is, is really working to do. And so whenever you think about this and you, you think about the targeting of, of subversives or the targeting of terrorists and you hear about these smart cities, it's not that easy. It, it's not that difficult to connect the dots, but it does require someone to consistently pay attention to all of these articles and to bring them together. And a lot of times when someone does, they're easily labeled by the mainstream as a conspiracy theorist. But it's really all in your face as a fact. So here Basile writes, the 21st century knowledge based and data driven economy is all about IP and data. Smart cities are the new battlefront for big tech because they serve as the most promising hotbed for additional intangible assets that hold the next trillion dollars to add to their market capitalizations. Smart cities rely on IP and data to make the vast array of city sensors more functionally valuable. And when under the control of private interests, an enormous new profit pool is Sidewalk Labs chief executive Dan Doktoroff said, we are in this business to make money. Sidewalk also wants full autonomy from city regulation so it can build without constraint. You can only commercialize IP or data when you own or control them. That's why Sidewalk, as a recent Globe and Mail investigation revealed, is taking control to own all IP on this project. All smart companies know that controlling the IP controls, access to the data, even when it is shared data, stunningly when Waterfront Toronto's released its updated agreement, they left the ownership of IP and data unresolved, even though IP experts 
publicly asserted that ownership of IP must be clarified upfront or it defaults to sidewalk. Securing new monopoly IP rights coupled with the best new data sets creates a systemic market advantage from which companies can inexorably expand. A privately controlled smart city infrastructure upends traditional models of citizenship because you cannot opt out of a city or a society that practices mass surveillance. Foreign corporate interests tout new technocratic efficiencies while shrewdly occluding their unprecedented power grab. As the renowned technologist Evgeny Morozov said, that the city is also the primary target of big tech is no accident. If these firms succeed in controlling its infrastructure, they need not worry how much else. So, it notes that Ann Kavukia's decision to walk away from the project was made just weeks after Waterfront Toronto's Digital Strategy Advisory Panel member, Sadia Muzaffar, resigned over concerns about how Google will collect and handle data controlled from people within the smart city. See, in, in this is the trade. We heard it whenever I played it a week or two weeks ago with Obama saying that individuals in a democratic society are going to have to be willing to give up their autonomy for greater security. This is the liberty versus security debate. Though, if we go back to the reason why I've called this the battle for the republic is, is that when it came to when the woman asked Ben Franklin, as the story goes, what have you created us for us, Mr. Franklin? a monarchy or democracy, he said, a republic if you can keep it. Now, it's important to understand that whenever it comes to that, anyone who is willing to give up their liberty for security will have neither liberty nor security. And so this smart city is something that we should all be concerned about because once it has been proven in one place, it will become the norm. So Waterfront Toronto's astounding apathy and utter lack of leadership regarding shaky public trust and social license is exactly why Sadia Muzaffar ended up leaving. Local residents remain concerned over the lack of transparency in regards to the project, as many believe the deal has been shrouded in secrecy. As Jim Basili described it, we are at a point where a secretive, unelected, publicly funded corporation with no expertise in IP, data, or even basic digital rights is in charge of navigating forces of urban privatization, algorithmic control, and rule by corporate contract. And see, the, the thing that people have to really wrap their mind around is, is that there's, there's two different realities. There's the propagandistic false narrative reality, and then there is the the, the true reality. And, and whenever I say propagandistic, I'm not referring to propaganda in its tool sense. I'm it's it's the negative connotation of propaganda, but it's more about the propagating of a certain idea. See, propaganda in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It depends on the use for which it is employed. It's like a hammer. 
a hammer can end up constructing a house in which I sit, or it could be used to clump someone over the head and kill them. It is two totally different end uses, but the 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 value, the the good, its innate goodness is not there. It, it depends on those who use it, and the same is true for propaganda. And so whenever it comes to get convincing us of an idea, propagating an idea, that is what I am getting at whenever it, when it comes to the two different realities. See, the reality is, is that at the end of the day, the smart city has the ability to make things much easier, use automation, leverage robotics. Though, is there a guarantee that the technocrat is going to be benevolent? Will it be a benevolent robot as Isaac Asimov in his Laws of Robotics imagined? Well, most likely not, because robots will be created by humans, and humans are innately flawed by original sin. See, what I talked about earlier in the previous hour about how most humans end up desiring possessions, that's just the natural state of affairs. Now, the unnatural state of affairs is, is giving and sharing. Well, giving and sharing is good whenever it is based upon one's own will. The difference about giving and sharing in communism is, is that that is not based upon one's own will. That is based upon an edict from a government forcing one to give and share. And so this is the other part whenever it ends up coming to the propagandistic value of an idea. See, we have what is thrown out there as the as the the beneficent part of the smart city, the part that is meant to benefit us. What is not seen is what happens when the technocrat or the global elite who is running it is actually not beneficent when they are not an individual who cares when they are sociopathic because what we do see is that sociopaths exist and oftentimes they do yearn for power just like Hitler or Stalin or Mao notice those three all end up doing it within the socialistic framework because of its propagandistic aspects and the will for individuals to disbelieve the negative and to hope for the positive. See, everyone who ended up being behind them was sold on the idea that we were going to all get together and it was going to end up having this utopia on Earth. But in actuality, that never, ever materialized. And if you actually talk to a, a communist or a socialist and you say, well, what about Pol Pot? What about Mao? What about Stalin? Oh, well, it comes down to they never really did it right. But in actuality, they did. The whole goal was that the propaganda of communism was to sell the masses on a utopian society that is innately against the human condition. Again, you sharing, giving is a learned behavior. The pattern is well established that most people end up not being very sharing or very giving through an altruistic sense.
And so whenever it comes to the concept of capitalism versus communism, we're told that that capitalism is, is this negative situation. But actually, if you look at it, at, at children playing together or even sharing baseball cards before you tell them that the baseball cards actually have any intrinsic value, there is a worth in and of themselves to the individual who holds them. And sometimes they are actually able to exchange those two which would be considered a commodity, a, to them, it was an exchange for money, so it does have an intrinsic value that they, in that social interaction, can be altruistic, but in their most consistent way, are exchanging goods. They are, they're bartering. Well, capitalism was based upon that. We just end up having this conflated idea that that gold only ends up having a, a monetary reason for existence. But actually, if you end up going through the computer with which I am using to pull up these articles or you go through your cell phone, well, gold or platinum conductive metals are used in there for their circuit boards. So there's more than just the, the, the melt value of it. It actually ends up having a utility value in it. So here in regard to commodities, here's an interesting article about how propaganda was able to convince a bunch of millennials that, you know, they can rob from the rich. So Robin Hood is said to get 40 percent revenue from high frequency trading firms like Citadel. Stealing from millennials to give to the rich, Robinhood app sells user customer data to make a quick buck from the high-frequency trading firms on Wall Street. That is what we wrote last month. This is from Zero Hedge, Tyler Durden. And it says, is one of the, the first articles that expressed concern over the popular Robinhood investing app for millennials, which has shady ties to high-frequency trading firms and undermines its image of an anti-Wall Street ethos. So it, it patterns itself as being against Wall Street, that it's meant to help the little guy. But what are they doing? Well, they're, they're, they're selling the data of the little guy to the high frequency trading firms. So almost a month after our report, Bloomberg has now confirmed that more than 40 percent of Robinhood's revenues earlier this year were derived from selling its customer orders to firms like Citadel Securities and Two Sigma Securities. Excuse me. Last week, the company amended the How Robinhood Makes Money page on its website and published an open letter from its co-founder, Vlad Tenev, describing the practice of selling orders to high-frequency trading firms. We send your order to market makers like Two Sigma, Citadel, and Virtue instead of exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, Tenev said in a letter posted on the company's blog last Friday. Market makers don't front run your orders. They're actually required by regulations, NMS, to execute your order at the best price among all the exchanges. And unlike exchanges, they don't charge fees. While selling orders to high frequency trading firms is not illegal, the article notes, it has been widely criticized by regulators and consumer advocacy groups who allege the activity is not in the best interest for Main Street. So they end up having this excerpt. This represents a severe breach of confidentiality for its over 4 million active users and a remarkable act of deception from the Silicon Valley firm Robinhood that promotes ethical trading practices to benefit the everyday American. 
But as we discovered via Logan Keynes reporting, the company is handsomely profiting from the average person by selling users order flow. And see, this is what they want to do with the smart city is they want everyone to opt in to basically open their lives like a cadaver on an autopsy table and have it all laid out there and all its naked grossness so that it could mine the minerals and essence. It's it's just like in Dr. Strangelove when the crazy when the the crazy general continues to say they want our essence because that's what they do they they it's a commodity to them human resource your energy or your battery life you know it's it's the this maritime law it it's really interesting the study of the human language and how it's all all intertwined I could go on for hours on the the it's almost this esoteric nature of language and the double meanings and how words end up having having almost the exact same meaning whenever they're 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 spelled slightly differently. But the the ideas that they convey. But that's another story for another day. So this Robinhood app, which ends up patterning itself as something that is meant to set the little guy where they can end up trading with the Titans and stick their thumb in the Titans eye. But yet the people who develop the app are actually selling it, uh, selling their data uh, to other to other companies that obviously would not necessarily be. If the end user knew and it wouldn't be someone that they would want to benefit from their information. And so it's, it's just one of those interesting things that again, it's, it's sold to someone as something else, but in reality, it's something different. Just again, and that's why I think it really does a good job of dovetailing into this article surveillance capitalism. And so here China targets control of internet of things for spying and business. So again, we have the smart city. Well, China has implemented it, implemented parts of the smart city. Again, you have your social credit, but here is an article from Bill Gertz uh, at the Free Beacon. Uh, he is a national security writer for, I believe, the Washington Post. Um, China is aggressively seeking to dominate the Internet of Things and plans to use access to billions of networked electronic devices for intelligence gathering, sabotage, and business purposes, according to a forthcoming congressional report. China, for nearly a decade, has been investing heavily in the emerging technology of the Internet of Things and has made outpacing similar U.S. efforts one of the ruling Communist Party of China's highest strategic goals. China's unique approach to the development of the Internet of Things and its enabling infrastructure poses significant challenges for U.S. economic and national security interests says a report by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission due out on Thursday. The highest echelons of the Chinese regime view to develop, view the Internet of Things development and deployment as critical matters of China's economic competitiveness and national security. A major concern outlined in the report is China's efforts to uncover vulnerabilities in the Internet of Things systems 
that can be used by Beijing for strategic objectives in both peacetime and war. Aside from the industrial control systems, unauthorized access to healthcare devices could kill patients, and exploitation of smart car vulnerabilities could kill drivers and pedestrians alike. Among other examples of possible misuse of data and devices that could have dire consequences, the report warns. The future destructive potential of unauthorized access to the Internet of Things devices appears potentially limitless. The Internet of Things is an ill-defined term for a global information communication infrastructure. It is made up of linked devices ranging from biomedical devices for monitoring patients to self-driving cars to critical infrastructure. The universe of the Internet of Things devices includes billions of electronic systems such as video cameras, smartphones, smartwatches, and industrial control systems used in electric grids. The Chinese Internet of Things objectives, including building smart cities that monitor public utilities, flows of people and traffic, underground pipelines and air, and water quality, the report said. Other Chinese Internet of Things plans include advanced remote industrial controls, medical Internet of Things, smartphones equipped with remote controls for appliances and security systems, and smart cars linking vehicle sensors to drivers, roads, cloud services, and other electronic devices. The Internet of Things is expanding rapidly and will be further enhanced in emerging advanced information technologies such 5G cellular technology. Use of 5G networks will increase the ability of network devices to interact through faster data transfer speeds. China, according to the report, is working on major programs to find vulnerabilities in the Internet of Things technology ostensibly for cybersecurity. However, the report suggests the research is cover for plans to conduct this for cyber espionage, sabotage, and military cyber reconnaissance using the Internet of Things. One example of an Internet of Things cyber attack took place in 2016 when the malware known as the MyRai botnet infiltrated thousands of linked devices by scanning the Internet for video cameras, most made in China, and DVRs that were not protected and easily accessed by using default passwords such as password. That botnet commandeered some 100,000 of these devices and used them to carry out a distributed denial of service attack against Dyne DNS that shut down many popular websites. A second botnet called IOTroop targeted several brands of Chinese-made internet protocol cameras in late 2017. A Chinese case discovered in 2016 by security research researchers revealed that firmware updated software made by Shanghai ADUPS Technology Company Limited was secretly siphoning off private data and sending it to China. ADUPS's firmware update software is currently in use on more than 700 million low-end mobile phones and IoT devices around the globe, including devices in the United States. Chinese Internet of Things researchers also preparing to use cyber attacks against the Internet of Underwater Things that applications for submarine warfare. The imperfect availability of enemy location information underwater warfare offers a strategic advantage to any nation with advanced underwater system sensor technology and comprised to Internet of Things devices. So you end up having a multitude of ways that China has been working. And we went over this a little while ago and last week about China's 
use and insertion of chips into different software systems, different computer systems. They've found them throughout DOD. They found them in uh, different components in military technology software uh, or military technology hardware. And this is this is one of the reasons why we have to be very careful about what we allow into our into our house, what we allow into our car, in front of our children. See, what we may or may not have realized is, is that, again, I said it earlier, the phone has the ability to connect us with one another. It has the ability for us to share ideas with our friends and family members. But it also ends up being a direct resource where individuals can spy on us. And this is the most interesting thing about the nanny cams being positioned in different houses. You know, you end up having someone who who has their child at home. And so they end up wanting to make sure that they can check on their child. Sometimes it's even checking on their pet. And so they end up having a camera that's over an IP address, an Internet protocol. Well, that Internet protocol, even if it's secure socket encrypted and has the ability to be hacked into even your. And this is the thing that, you know, Google, as it goes through and ends up doing uh, Google Street View. Well, it's Street View also ended up having a software where it was beaming out to every single Wi-Fi connection in order to make a connection. And then it was downloading passwords off of Wi-Fi um, in each people's home. One second. You know, it's really interesting. Some of these articles I haven't even thought of in years. Um, so here, this is back in 2010, Google admits collecting Wi-Fi data through street view cars. German request for data audit reveals the web giant accidentally stored payload information from open networks. Accidentally in quotes. It was just an accident. I mean, we had to pay a, a, a code monkey to create the code that actually allowed for this accident to happen. So we had to pay somebody to create this, but it was an accident. Google has been accidentally gathering extracts of personal web activity from domestic Wi-Fi networks through street view cars that is used since 2007. It's had last night. It was discovered as a result of a data audit demanded by Germany's Data Protection Authority and is likely to inflame critics of Google concerned about the web giant's use of private data. And what would you expect? What would you expect? I mean, they... So they're creating a smart city. Again, it's meant to be benevolent. But every time they're given that opportunity to actually not do something evil or as Facebook likes to say, don't be creepy. What do they do? Well, it's propaganda. See, they're only saying we have a mo uh, we, we actually believe in don't do anything evil. But but what do they what do we see them doing time and time again? Oh, well. But Google says their motto, don't be evil. So then they must not be evil, right? Well, that's just not the way that it pans out. So this article continues, as well as systematically photographing streets and gathering 3D images of cities and towns around the world, Google Street View cars are fitted with antennas that scan local Wi-Fi networks and use the data for its location services. 
In a post on its European public policy blog on the 27th of April, Google stated that although it does gather Wi-Fi network names, SSIDs, and identifies MAC addresses for devices like network routers, it does not gather payload data passed through those Wi-Fi networks. Yeah, right. But yesterday, Google blogged that the audit had prompted it to re-examine everything we have been collecting and admit its mistake. It is now clear that we have been mistakenly collecting samples of payload data from open Wi-Fi networks, even though we never use that data in any Google products. I mean, how can you believe them? How can you even believe them? They're just full of it. So here from Vox, okay. Um, actually, let's get into uh, running out of time. Google, U.S. military. See, this, this is the thing. So, so Google was actually its its seed money was started by NQTEL. So, NQTEL is the CIA's hedge fund, and it invests in in all sorts of emerging emerging technology products. And so, whenever it ends up coming to to Google and you know these accidents, you end up having to see it through that framework. Okay, so if the CIA gave them money, and they they created Google. Uh, and then the CIA has been talking about the Internet of Things conceptually that actually whenever it comes to the Internet, it's it's it's. It is the son of Serpanet, which is actually a, a, a DARPA project, um, which ends up coming out of connecting all sorts of, of military um, networks together. And so, you know, this is one of the this is one of the things. So. Here, here from Live Science, Google will end its evil partnership with the U.S. military. And then right below that, Google helps Chinese military. Why not U.S.? <laughs> so, uh, and then here, here is futurism. Just Google, just kidding. We're going to keep working with the military after all. And so, uh, employees, we hear you, but we're going to ignore you is what the article ends up saying. Uh, and it says Google pulled a head fake. Let's catch you up real quick. Google partnered with the Department of Defense for Project Maven in which artificial intelligence would analyze military drone footage. Google employees made it clear they're not happy to be working on the project. And last week, it looked like the company was going to meet their demands. Google announced that it would not would not renew its contract with the military when it expires next year. Well, it turns out that that sweet, sweet military dough is too good to pass up. Well, it's actually probably in, in part of its charter that it actually shares information with who else, but who actually ended up giving it money. The military industrial complex also, uh, as Q likes to refer to as um, clowns in action. And so before we before we leave all of this, before I leave you uh, with this segment to ponder. I think it's important. So the smart city where they're going to watch you, they're going to track you. Well, again, this is that that idea that we can end up going back to Thomas More's Utopia. And in it, it notes, and this is from the Wikipedia article because I don't have, it, have my notes on, on Utopia. But it notes that there is no private property on Utopia, communism, with goods being stored in warehouses and people requesting what they need, communism. There are also no locks on the doors of the houses, and the houses are rotated between citizens every 10 years. 
Well, they probably aren't because if anyone who's listening to me has ever been a landlord, you end up almost having to like, I mean, you have cohabitation with animals. Sometimes you have ticks, even with people who own houses or, or fleas. So you're ripping out the carpet, you're painting the walls. I doubt if someone's only going to be in something for two years that unless they are given some type of, of strong moral code that they're going to take care of it. And so the houses are rotated between citizens every 10 years. Agriculture provides the most important occupation on the island. And then every person is taught it must live in the countryside farming two years at a time. Okay, so balance that out. You're going to stay in the house for 10 years, but you're going to live in the countryside two years at a time. That doesn't even make sense. With women doing the same work as men, again, we, we end up seeing that. They've broken the glass ceiling in Utopia. Parallel to this, every citizen must learn at least one of the essential trades, weaving, mainly done by women, carpentry, metalsmithing, and masonry. So weaving, they they probably would not like that. Now this would be considered misogynist, even though, you know, uh, women and men do the same work. And so it notes that uh, there is deliberate simplicity about these trades. For instance, all people wear the same types of simple clothes. And there are no dressmakers making fine apparel. All able-bodied citizens must work. Thus, unemployment is eradicated. Huzzah. And the length of the working day can be minimized. The people only have to work six hours a day, although many willingly work for longer hours. Sure, because you're all going to have the same outcome, not the same opportunity, but the same outcome. And so it's just interesting that the, as as you think about the, the smart city, you start to see this idea of Thomas More's utopia, which really ends up being a fable it, it reminds me of, of you know the communist utopia the workers paradise which never was paradise for the worker and and just human reality but here uh this is from october 24 2018 dylan matthews and bird pinkerton how our drinking water could help prevent suicide some researchers researchers think putting lithium in our water could save lives Lithium is a potent psychiatric drug, one of the primary prescribed medications for bipolar disorder, but it's also an element that occurs naturally all over the Earth's crust, including in bodies of water. That means that small quantities of lithium wind up in the tap water you consume every day. Just how much is in the water is quite a bit from place to place. Naturally, that made researchers curious. All places with more lithium in the water are healthier mentally. Do places with more lithium have less depression or bipolar? But most importantly of all, fewer suicides. In a 2014 study uh, review of studies concluded the answer was yes. Four of five studies reviewed found that places with higher levels of trace lithium had lower suicide rates. Tough psychiatry professor Nasir Gahimi, co-authored that review, argues that the effects are large. High lithium areas, he says, have suicide rates 50 to 60 percent lower than those of low lithium areas. And see, this is the, the interesting thing where the technocratic scientific elite want to change our environment under the auspices of helping us. But again, we have to keep in mind the law of unintended consequences and the fact that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And so here from National Geographic, an article from July in 2010 ends up having Prozac pollution making shrimp reckless. Antidepressants, key ingredient, is flushed in coastal water, study says. 
There is no happy ending for shrimp exposed to the mood booster Prozac, according to a new study. Remnants of antidepressant drugs flushed into waterways worldwide are altering shrimp behavior and making them easier prey, experts say. To mimic conditions in the wild, scientists exposed the estuary-dwelling shrimp to antidepressant fluoroexetine at levels detected in average sewage treatment waste. Fluoroexetine is the key ingredient in drugs Prozac and Seroquin. Shrimp normally gravitate towards safe, dark corners, but when exposed to fluoroexetine, the animals were five times more likely to swim toward a bright region of water the team discovered. This behavior makes them much more likely to be eaten by a predator, such as a fish or a bird, said co-author Alex Ford. The fluoxetine likely makes shrimp nerves more sensitive to serotonin, a brain chemical known to alter moods and sleep patterns, according to this study recently published in the Journal of Aquatic Toxiology. So antidepressant use is rising rapidly. More than 10% of U.S. citizens or about 27 million people use the drugs in 2005, according to a 2009 paper in the Journal Archives of General Psychiatry. It is so widespread that animals other than shrimp likely suffer from these high doses of fluoxetine, the authors noted. And so what they found is that not only did shrimp become more susceptible to putting themselves in areas of danger for predators, they also basically were very reckless. So whenever we think about the smart cities, this idea that we could dose everyone with fluoride in the water, to end up having this utopia where there are no suicides. But we also have to think of the opposite effect where this also makes it very easy for people to be convinced that they love their servitude, which is exactly what Aldous Huxley talked about in his 1963 Berkeley speech, where he said, well, where the ultimate revolution, the revolution to end all revolutions is where the, the, the average man brings servitude upon himself where he seeks it out. He seeks out comfort. He seeks out avoiding any type of distress. And this is exactly why we have to pay attention because it's it's through this animating contest of humanity that we are able to end up enjoying a greater stature in life. And that if anything is given to you for free, it is most likely not worth having. Just like this republic, it was bought with blood and gold. Many men lost their lives at a great expense to their future and their own wealth, almost becoming bankrupt in the revolution. And so it is with that that I leave you. I ask you to fight for this republic. It is worth fighting for. Fight for your humanity and don't go quietly into that dark night. God bless and good luck.